morning, everybody. Um, and to everybody on Zoom, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, um, our world is and remains troubled. Uh, Lord, there is shooting again. Um, and uh, Father, the, these, these episodes seem to come in big clumps. And maybe it's the media suddenly paying attention and reporting them. Uh, maybe it's copycats or... Lord, maybe it's just evil rising and swelling at, at different times. But, Lord, we pray for the victims, uh, the families of the victims who are now missing family members. And, uh, Father, we pray for um, you to bring peace on this earth, that uh, that day is coming when you will reign and uh, these things will be no more. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day. Have mercy. Father, I want to pray for Joanne. I uh, spent some time with her this past week, and she's uh, healing well. Lord, we look forward to her return. Thank you that you have blessed her with modern surgery that could perform a heart valve replacement without opening up her chest to do that. That's just amazing, Lord, and uh, that she could recover so quickly. Lord, what a, what a mercy that you have on us, and thank you for that common grace. Uh, Father, we pray now for our time in your word. Would you show us what it is that we have uh, before us? Lord, would you show us the glories of Christ in, uh, in all of these things? And we ask all of this, Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So there is a thing called the Napoleon complex, and that's not the inclination to put your hand in your chest. Um, what the Napoleon complex is is not people who think they're Napoleon, though there are people who do that. Uh, it is this sense of self-importance and this idea that you are the most powerful and influential person around. It's kind of a, a version of Gnosticism, uh, of uh, narcissism. Um, but it is accurately and appropriately named because Napoleon was quite a thing. Um, in 1953, Time Magazine published some of his letters. And uh, I just perusing through them a little bit. Um, Napoleon wrote, here's one, he, he says, your letters, Napoleon wrote to his brother, Louis, King of Holland, are always talking of obedience and of respect. But these, obedience and respect, consist in not going so fast in such important matters without my advice. Can't you see? And then when he's in, uh, um, then he wrote to, I'm sorry, he wrote to the Duke of Dalmatia, uh, and he says, how could a man of your ability have supposed that I should ever allow you to exercise any authority not derived from me? Your action shows a failure to recognize my character. And even when the man was in exile, after he was deposed from his throne and put in exile on the island of Alba, he continued to write letters. And there, there are letters that show that his vanity was so prodigious I'm quoting time on this. His vanity was so prodigious that when exiled to the island of Elba, he referred to the 18 Marines who guarded him as my guard and to the little boats that he had as the Navy. <laughs> this is a problem with humanity. That's why there is a Napoleon complex that people can suffer from is we all have a tendency or a possibility of thinking grandiose thoughts of ourselves, of, of thinking that we are something so important and so this morning, as we turn to Daniel chapter 2, unfortunately, we've got to do the whole chapter. It's going to be really hard. Um, I was thinking this morning, should I just do the first portion and then break it up? But 
I need the rest of it to get the first portion to make sense. So we're going to do the whole chapter, even though we had Dan read just a portion in the middle. As we turn to this, we're going to learn some really important things. And what we're going to see ultimately is his kingdom secured. Um, but before we get there, we have to have some, some troubling times. So it begins with this, this sentence. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and sleep left him. So real quick, um, little nuts and bolts stuff. The second year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you remember last week, Daniel and his friends were put into Pagan University of Babylon for three years. So is this where, you know, one of these sections where the Bible doesn't quite line up? And we explained it previously in Babylonian counting the first year, the year of ascension was not the first year of the reign, the, the second full year was and, and all of that. Also, there's nothing saying that Daniel had graduated by this point. This could be stepping back and kind of flowing into what is said before. So there's really not a problem there. What I thought was most interesting about this was Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, what bothered Nebuchadnezzar? We don't know for sure. We can't say exactly because Daniel's next sentence is, he was upset because. But I think if we look at the flow of the chapter, we can get an idea, and it's not too far of a leap, I don't believe, to say what was really troubling Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he says at one point, he says, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. So he has a dream. It really troubled him. He goes to his wise men and he says, okay, tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. And when they say, we can't do that, his immediate response is paranoia. You're lying, you're speaking corrupt words to me, and, and he's all kinds of bent out of shape because of this. He's paranoid. There's a, there's a sense of paranoia about him. He said he's going to kill all the wise men if they can't tell him the answer. What do you get when you kill all the wise men? What you wind up with is second-class wise men taking their places. So that's not a good idea. This is not a man who's thinking really rationally. He's paranoid. The second thing is, what is the answer that he gets as he's troubled in these dreams, as these dreams are plaguing him? What is the answer that he gets? It's, it, the answer is, what comes in the future? What comes next? And so I think what is going on is he's paranoid about his kingdom. Will it last? W will I be able to survive here? There's another hint in the way that the chapter is structured. Um, the word kingdom is repeated nine times in the chapter. And that is only slightly behind the words dreams and interpretations, which are about 15 times. So if you just count the words, the dreams and the interpretations are about the kingdom. So I think Nebuchadnezzar was worried about his future. Now, understand this guy had it all. He had awesome power. And, and it's only been confirmed to him. Even before he ascended to the throne, there was not a nation that could stand before him. He had defeated the mighty Egyptian army at Carchemish, which is by the, F, the uh, Euphrates. Before he ascended to the throne, he led this battle and he defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish. And then he turned and he marched practically unopposed through Syria and just sacked them. He extracted tremendous tribute out of them. In other words, you have to pay me to continue to exist. 
And then after his father died, he, kept, he became a king and he marches on Ashkelon and then he sacks Jerusalem and takes all of this back. He is now the king of pretty much the known world. And he's sitting in his palace, rich and secure. He's got everything at his disposal and it, trouble, it troubles him. He can't sleep. He's wondering, can this all last? Will, will this be able to carry on? And so he has the dream. God gives him this dream. Now, God gives people dreams, and they see things, and, and they communicate things. We see that in the Bible a handful of times. But quite often, probably more often than not, you have a dream because something is weighing on your mind. It's really troubling you. And the way your subconscious works is it takes that time off from having to do things like figure out how not to run into telephone poles and how to use English to speak to people to do things like process what is bugging you. And so sometimes your dream can reflect something that's really irritating you. And that's what's going on with, with Nebuchadnezzar, except God intervenes and gives him this vision. So he says, um, the problem is, in, in verse 10, uh, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods who do not dwell with the flesh. They're called wise men for a reason. Now, you have to understand there's, there's biblical wisdom, there's true godly wisdom, and that begins with the fear of the Lord. These men don't have the fear of the Lord. They have the fear of gods, small g's. But they're also wise. It's possible to have a worldly wisdom and understanding of how this world works. And so when they say this, they're exactly correct. What the king is asking is impossible. Nobody has ever asked anybody for this before, and there's nobody who can give it, only God. And, and Daniel will repeat that. That's what he said when, what, uh, in what Dan read. So the king has set this stage, and he said, if you can't do this, if you can't do this thing that I'm asking, I'm going to kill you all. Does that sound like a man with tremendous power who is extremely paranoid? He's, he's going to wipe out his entire cabinet. So what happens next is the decree goes out. The, the, the king issues the decree, and the wise men are about to be killed. And so they seek for Daniel and his companions. Now, Daniel and his companions could be amongst the graduates who are now part of the, the wise men group, or it could be they're in wise men training in college, and so they're going to get them too. But whatever it is, they come and they look for Daniel to kill him. In verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Now we see why he's going to get elevated in the kingdom, with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, in other words, the chief executioner, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So it appears that Daniel walks into the palace, the, the throne room, and says, King, give me some time, and we'll give you the interpretation. Where the other wise men are saying, it's not possible. Daniel steps out in a tremendous act of faith. He hasn't received the answer yet. He's not coming in with something he already has. He comes in and he says, give us a little time. We will give you the answer. And so that's, that is a, a sign of the faith of this young man. These guys were still probably teenagers at this point. They're, they're very young people, and yet he goes in with this great confidence. 
Why does he have that kind of confidence? Well, because he knows the true and the living God. And he knows that God has exiled Judah, but he didn't eradicate them. And so he has faith that there is a way that, that God is going to answer this. And so that's what happens. He goes in and he talks to um, his friends and he says, pray that we will not get, um, get um, uh, executed. Now, is that self-serving? Pray for that we won't, but the other guys are, are in trouble. No, I don't think it's necessarily self-serving. I think if you look at it, what Daniel is saying is, pray they don't kill us because we're the ones that are going to be able to give the answer. And, and it's possible that some of the other wise men had already been executed, so there's this threat. So Daniel talks to his friends, and he says, pray that we will survive so that one of us will be able to give the answer to the king. And that, the, then what verse 19 says is, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and now have made known to me what is asked of you. For you have made it known to the king. You have made it known. Um, you have made known the king's matter. So there's an important lesson in this. Daniel is now threatened. The axe is hanging over his head. Execution is coming. He asks the king for pardon, and then what does he do? He prays. He goes to his friends and he says, "Would you guys pray? Let's all pray. Let's seek the Lord in this." And the, 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 the important thing to remember here is this is not something that's stranded in the Old Testament. We pray. We pray to the same God. And he does the same thing. He can answer. He will answer. God hears prayers. He hears the prayers of his people. He hears the prayers of his saints. And he answers prayer. That seems like the most simplest, basic thing. Everybody in the room should be going, yeah. But you know what? We hear that, we acknowledge it, we confess it, we could, we could put it up on the wall and say, yes, I agree with that, and yet we all suffer from prayerlessness. We all have a hard time getting to God in prayer, even though we know this to be true. So the first bit of advice I think we get from Daniel in this story is pray against prayerlessness in your life. If you don't want to pray, the first thing you should do is pray about not wanting to pray and see if God won't begin to change your heart. So that's the prayer. They, they pray that God will do this, and then comes the, exp the dream and the explanation. And so what happens is Daniel goes in, and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, here's your dream, O boss. Here's, here's what you saw. You saw an image, a, an icon, an idol that was huge, and it was brilliant, and it was beautiful, and it was terrifying. That's what scared you so bad. And it had a head of gold. And it had a chest and arms of silver. It had a belly and a waist of bronze, legs of iron. And then the feet were like clay and iron mixed together. And what you saw was a, a stone pulled out of a mountain that came and struck those feet. And the entire image turned into dust, like the summer chaff caught in the wind. Just poof, it's gone. That, that's what you saw. And you can hear in Nebuchadnezzar, deep breath, oh my gosh, he got it. What does this mean? 
Because if Nebuchadnezzar is really as paranoid as he appears to be, he could be looking at that dream and thinking, that's me. And, and something's going to come and destroy me. And so when he's told, no, 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 you're the head. Oh, that's great news. I'm the head. I'm not the whole thing. I won't be destroyed. I'm the head. Great. And then he says, you are the head. And then come after you is a kingdom that's not as glorious. It's made of silver, which is valuable, but not as valuable as gold. And then a belly of bronze. Bronze was really a useful and an important metal. It was pretty hard and, and, and much more abundant than gold and silver, so it's less valuable. And then iron, well, that's cheap. Everybody can get iron. They make chariots out of iron. And then iron and clay, common stuff. So what that tells Nebuchadnezzar is, is he looks at this and he's told, this is the future. This is your future. You're the head of gold. Your kingdom will be this, this kingdom of gold, and there will not come after it one single kingdom that will be as magnificent as yours. They will be decreasingly valuable until we get to clay. And so Nebuchadnezzar, maybe we could call him Napoleon, is thinking, cool, this is great. I will be the most glorious king for a long time. Nobody's going to eclipse me. This is great da news, Daniel. Thank you very much. And so the problem we'll see in the next couple of chapters is, is Nebuchadnezzar is not humble by this. Uh, he forgot the end of the story, that a stone is coming. And we'll understand that in a minute. But he's relieved, and the relief is palpable. And so what the king says is in verse 46, the king fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense, an offering and incense be offered up to him. So, real quick, do you think that Nebuchadnezzar is converted to be a Christian at this point? He's offering incense and, and offerings to man. He's he's still a pagan. He's just met a, a much more powerful god. So he offers him up to Daniel, and the king answered and said to Daniel, "Truly, your God is God of gods." And Lord, of, uh, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Dave, Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon, and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. That was how the last chapter ended. It, it, remember how chapter one ended? Daniel remained. Said so Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Nebuchadnezzar's not going to make it. Daniel will. So Daniel is going to remain in the king's court. Um, he, he didn't become a believer, but at least he found relief. The Lord revealed to him this relief. So why was he so troubled about his kingdom? Why would this, this message that his, nobody will eclipse him would be such a, a relief to him? Well, because that's where his heart was. That was what his heart was tied up in. It was his identity. I'm the ruler of the world, you guys. I, I have a certain um, appearance to keep up. I, I'm the ruler of the world. That's who I am. He believed that about himself. It was his security. He had massive armies. There was no country that could oppose him. He was secure. His security was in his identity as ruler of the world. It was his hope. This is the, everything I need. It, whatever I demand, it's brought to me. I just snap my fingers and somebody goes and finds it. Even when I'm unrealistic, even when I tell wise men to tell me something they don't know, they can't possibly know, it still gets delivered to me because a God shows up and tells me what my dream is. I, 
this is so great. This is my hope is in my power. It was his sense of purpose. It was his sense of destiny. This is what I was born to do because I was born to the great king. And so he was terrified because he was afraid that that might get taken away from him. He, he thought that might be what the dream was telling him. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's deal. What about us? How does this affect us? Remember from Romans, uh, Romans chapter 14 or 15, verse 4, Paul told us not too long ago, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what do we get from Nebuchadnezzar's lesson here? Well, I don't think any of us, sorry to break this to y'all, I don't think any of us are in danger of becoming the king of the world. I, I love you, I respect you all, but I really don't think you're going to become king of the world. Um, if you do, <laughs> no, I'm just, I, I just don't, I don't see that happening. But we are made out of the same stuff that Nebuchadnezzar was made out of. He was not the son of a god. He was not some ethereal building uh, person. He was just like us. And so just like Napoleon, just like Nebuchadnezzar, our hearts can be inclined to senses of grandeur, to being trusting and putting our hope in the wrong kinds of things. And so we can look to Nebuchadnezzar and we can say, there's a lesson to be learned there for us. And, and what is it? Well, this past week I was reading Luke, um, and I was read through Luke chapter 12 through 16. And it hit me in a way that it had never hit me before. And I want to go back and re-preach Luke now because I think I missed it on this part. Um, in, in chapter 12 through 16, there are some hard sayings of Jesus in there. There are some things that he says that are really troubling. We're comforted when he tells the rich young ruler, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me because he said it to the rich young ruler. Well, he says it to us in Luke. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to sell everything you have and come and follow me. Uh, he says, if you don't hate your mother, father, your sister, your brother, your children, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. What? Really? He, he, he says some very difficult things in there. He says, you know what? You can't get divorced ever, period. End of discussion. What? And even his disciples in another book would go to him and go, then why should we get married? He says, you don't understand. You don't get it. So in that section, Jesus says some really shocking things. And I, I kind of wrestled through them, and I was struggling. But when I went back and read about halfway through verse or chapter 12, there's the parable of the rich farmer. And so let me just unpack that a little bit, and it'll kind of introduce the rest of this, and, and it'll make sense in a moment. So a man has a field, and his field produces abundantly, like huge. It's just overflowing with food. And so the man goes out to his field and he goes, what should I do? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build a bigger barn, and I'll bring that all in and then I'll live in luxury. I'll live in peace for the future because I'll have all this money. But God said to him, fool, don't you know tonight your soul is going to be required of you? And so that's, that's this shocking story. And why was he a fool? If God says he's a fool, he's a fool, right? Why was he a fool? Was he a fool because he was a farmer? No, there's nothing wrong with being a farmer. That made sense in an agricultural society. That was a way to have a solid income and, and provide food for your family. Was he a fool because his field produced abundantly? That can't be. That can't be. Because, first of all, it meant he was a pretty good farmer if he could get a field to do that. But second of all, I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I planted, Apollos watered, 
and God gave the increase. Now, he's talking about churches, but he's using an agricultural illustration because that's how it works in agricultural. You can plant, you can fertilize, you can weed, and you can do all that stuff, but it's God who's going to give the, the increase. So he's not a fool because God made his, his, his plot of land super abundantly um, full. Was he a fool because he said, what am I going to do with this? The, the, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about people who wouldn't do that, who would just go, oh, you know, hey, cool, food. I'm not going to bring it in. That would be a fool. So he's actually planning ahead. That's not foolish. Was it foolish for him to say, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barn and build a bigger one. Well, this is where we get to the issue of wisdom is not a yes or no answer. It is not a, a law or a rule. It is making a decision between a couple of good choices. So what could he have done? One of them was, I'll tear down my barn. I'll build a bigger one. That's not a bad idea. Another idea could be, I'll leave my barns just the way they are. I'll bring in the harvest as much as I can possibly fit in there, and then I'll just tell everybody in town, come and take what you need from the rest of the field. Let the poor come and glean. That wouldn't be a bad idea either, right? So that wasn't foolish. Why was he foolish? Because of the very last thing he said. I'll fill my barn, and I'll live in the lap of luxury. And you can tell that because God's answer to him is, tonight your soul will be required of you. So you're going to do this. You're going to bring all of this in, and you're going to have all of this money, and then I'm going to kill you. And then what have you got? Who's going to get it after you? You have no idea. That's what it means to be foolish. And then where Jesus goes with the rest of this, where Luke takes us through the rest of Jesus' teaching is, it's a matter of the heart. And in uh, verse 21, so after he's told the story of the, the I call it, he's, he's called the rich root farmer. I call him the foolish farmer whose heart was in his barn. Um, after he tells that story, he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that's the, the lesson is where is your heart in this? Um, and a couple of verses later, uh, verse 34, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so that's what's going on. Now, what was revolutionary for me, or what really helped me see this better is going through those, those chapters and seeing what the groups of stories are. Luke drew these teachings together to tell us something. So if that sets up the section, listen to where he goes. First of all, the parable of the rich farmer. His heart was in his barn. His treasure was in his security. I'll bring this food in. I'll be secure for life. And there's other stories in that, in that, up through chapter 13, verse 5, that have that idea of security. I'll, I'll be set when I do this. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 6 through uh, chapter 14, about halfway, verse 24, uh, a healing on the Sabbath and a lament over Jerusalem. And the healing on the Sabbath really is, I think, the key to help you understand that. What's going on there? Well, he comes in and he heals somebody on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees get mad at him about it. They're angry because he healed somebody. Go away. Don't come here on the Sabbath to get healed. Come back some other day. There's, there's plenty of other days. I think what, he's, what Jesus is saying is your heart in that instance could be attached to authority in religious observance or, or obedience, your obedience to these things. Um, then he says in that really short section, 25 through 33, hate your mother and father or you can't follow me. Um, I think what he's talking about is, is your heart tied up in the identity of your family. Is that where you're finding your worth and your value? It's look, I'm the son of. Look at my children. I have these wonderful children. Everybody loves them. Isn't that where my, my, my uh, pride, my hope, my understanding of my purpose, isn't that where it is? Then chapter 15 tells a couple of stories, 
the lost sheep and the lost coin. And also the parable of the, the, um, the prodigal son. So a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And all of them are found. And so there's a confidence uh, that people are, are being warned about, a confidence and privilege or position. Because that parable of the, uh, the prodigal son, the prodigal comes home and dad is overjoyed. But older brother's really mad about that. I never did any of that. I, I have always served you. I have this privilege. I have this position in your house, and you're not, you're not taking care of me. And his father's like, why can't you rejoice that your brother's home? Uh, there's this sense, this, this idea that I have this confidence because of my privileged position, because I've always been here. And then chapter 16, the dishonest manager. That one really blows your mind, because it seems like Jesus is saying, be like the dishonest manager, and, and write off money that people owe to your boss so that you'll be okay. But that, that's not his point. He's using that as an illustration. Look at what happens here. That's where he talks about divorce. And in talking about divorce, you can't divorce anybody for any reason. It could be that he said that because there's other scriptures that give reasons for divorce. So there, there's a biblical case for divorce. But that one, he just is flat out, no divorce. If it's in the context that I think it's in, it's people would marry they would get the widow's inheritance, they would take the land, and then they'd dump her. They'd go get another one. So it, it's that idea of, of um, money. And the reason I say that is because it's between the, the, rich, the uh, dishonest manager and Lazarus and the rich man. The name's right there in the title. The guy doesn't ever get named. His name is the rich man. So what is going on there is, is seeking that idea of comfort in having money. So that's why Jesus says where your heart is, or where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So where is your heart? Oh, I want to ask you to take some time and go through those chapters of Luke, Luke 12 through 16, and look for those stories and say, what, is, what part of my heart is Jesus addressing here? And so let me ask you again, where is your heart? If your heart is in security, I can guarantee it won't last. If I, I have a nice secure location, I live in a secure country, uh, I, I'm trusting that the police are going to take care of me, and all, whatever it is, security is an illusion. It's an absolute illusion. Um, are you trust There's, there was a, a family we knew back in Illinois. Um, they were really nice folks, good Christian folks. Uh, she was a cheerleader in high school, and she looked like it. She was cute as a button. Uh, just fiery red hair, beautiful, very charming, really nice person to be around. Um, her daughter played on a basketball team with my daughter. Um, after we left, she had a stroke. Middle of her life, the, the prime of her life, when she's on top of the world, she had a stroke. And it, was a it wasn't just a little one, it was a bad one. It deformed her face, it, it, it ruined her body. And then she began to put on weight because she couldn't move. And so this woman went from this, this pinnacle of what you think of beauty and charm to this person who is just ruined. There's no sense of security. There was no way she could fight against having a stroke. It just happened. So there's no real security. It is going to let you down. Um, what about your family? If your identity, if your hope is in your family, I have news for you, folks. Your kids grow up. And one of the most chilling moments in my life was when I handed my daughter the car keys, and she got in the car and drove away without me for the very first time. Ah. I mean, I was used to driving with her because I could, you know, 
backseat drive the whole way, but your kids grow up. So at a young age, they need you. They will not survive without you. And then they get to a more independent stage, and then eventually they drive away from you. And the relationship, you're still going to be their parents, they're still going to be your children, but the relationship is different. And now they're, you're coaching them more than telling them, go pick up your room. They don't need you to the same degree. They don't need you quite as much. We can have confidence in money. That's a fleeting one. Just one word for you, 2008. Um, if, you're, if you're really happy right now because your housing price, your housing assessment has just gone through the roof, all I have to say is give it some time. It's coming back down. Money is fleeting. When 2008 happened, I was working at Whole Foods Market. We used to call it Whole Paycheck because it was so expensive. And my thought at that time was, oh my gosh, I'm out of a job. There's no way people are going to lose this much money and continue to shop at Whole Foods Market. It's just not going to happen. Uh, they did, and I didn't lose my job. But I, it, it brought to mind, hey, there's nothing secure about having this position, having this kind of income. My, my mother was watching her, um, her savings, her, her retirement money, just clock down every day. And she panicked and took it out. She said, just give me all the cash. I'll sit on that. Because she was terrified of it. There's no guarantee that you have a good uh, IRA or 401k and it's going to last. So let me ask you again, where's your heart? Where is your heart in all of this? If you want to be able to figure out where your heart is, if you have something that you really love, give it away. Let go of it or threaten it. Put it out on a line where it might be gone and see how you react to that. That's why Jesus would say something as outrageous as sell everything you own, take all the proceeds, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Because he's saying, if you want to know where your heart is, if you want to know where your treasure is, threaten it and see how you respond. So where is your heart in all of this? Where is your pride? Where are you like Napoleon or Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and secure in these things? And what happens if they're threatened? So what you have to do is you have to threaten them and then you have to pray. Let's go back to prayer. God is not your enemy in this. He is on your side. He wants you to be more like this. So you could take a larger portion of your money and give it to the poor. And it's uncomfortable and it's, it's, it's odd and I, I don't necessarily know if I can live without that much or the, the savings is less than I would like. That's that threat. But you know what you do when you, when you give things away? What you're doing is you're guarding your heart. That's, that's Jesus' point here is guard your heart against being attached to these things. Let them be threatened. Let them be scary. And then make sure your heart is attached to what it's supposed to be. So why should you give alms to the poor? Because it frees you from greed. It frees you from a love of money. Now, is there any such thing as pure altruism? And by that I mean I'm going to do something and expect zero benefit from it. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. There, there is no such thing as real, thorough, pure, 100% altruism. Because you'll do it because you feel it's right and you want to be right. Even Jesus himself didn't go to the cross for purely 100% altruistic, I get nothing out of this, reasons. Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy set before him, 
he endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross. He didn't want to. He went to his father and said, if there's any way to make this pass, let it go by me. But not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross. But he went to the cross for the joy set before him. Because he knew, I will get, if I do this thing, I will get joy on the other side. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I am going to give my money away to the poor because it will free my heart and let me attach more to God. I will get something out of this. You get something out of it. The poor get something out of it. And the beauty is you become more like Christ because Christ gave himself away. So, so that's what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar's heart and what we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar's heart in this. But he missed something, didn't he? He thought, man, I'm secure. Dude, I'm, I'm set. Um, now, in modern mindsets, we think, well, when you die, that's it. You're gone and, and it's over. But Nebuchadnezzar was nowhere near a modern man. So he believed in some afterlife. He believed that he was going to be the king forever and have some sort of reign forever. And so for him to see these other kingdoms go before him and be less, he's like, cool. <laughs> Even in the afterlife, I'm still top dog. But he forgot something. He forgot that there's a rock coming, a stone. So that head of gold, some human hands mined the gold. They filtered the gold. They smelted the gold. Some human hands made a, a shape that that head of gold would be formed out of. Some human hands did that with the silver and the bronze and the iron. And some human hands mixed clay and iron together to make feet. It was the whole thing is a man-made structure. But there's something coming. That's the end of the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar forgot. There is a mountain. Um, no human being has ever made a mountain, um, even out of a molehill. It doesn't happen. No human being makes a mountain. A mountain is thrust up from the plates of the earth, and it rises up into the sky. That's it. So this mountain is made without hands. And then a stone is taken out of the mountain, and the stone is made without hands. And that non-human-made stone comes, and it strikes the feet of that statue. And the whole statue, not just the feet, the whole statue turns into the, the chaff of the summer and is just drifting away in the wind. But what happens with that rock? That rock hits the ground and it begins to do something no rock has ever done. It grows. And this stone begins to grow and it winds up filling the entire earth. And the way Daniel interprets it, he says that is a kingdom that was made without human hands and it will never go away. In those days, in the days of that last kingdom, it's going to come. And so here's what's happening. That stone is Christ. He is the rock that comes and he destroys those empires. And so how is that rock filling the earth today? It's filling the earth through his church as he builds his church and sends his church out. So that's why it's important for us to look and say, well, where's my heart in this? I don't want my heart attached to one of these kingdoms that's going to turn into chaff and blow away. I want my heart attached to that rock, which will never go away, which will expand and fill the entire earth. That rock, which can never let me down. It can never be disappointing. It will never get in a car and drive away from me. It will never shrink because the housing market has collapsed. This rock is just going to keep growing and growing. And so that's where we need to have our heart is within that kingdom. And that's what Christ has promised us. That's what Jesus is telling us. So even back in the days of Daniel, 6th century BC, that same message was there. There's a kingdom coming. It's the kingdom you really want to be part of. Don't put your hope in these other ones. They're going to let you down. 
And so can you say, like we sang this morning, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Could you say that if your house, if you went home and your house was burned down or occupied by somebody else? Could you say that if you got a phone call or a text message saying, don't come to work on Monday, you're fired? Could you say that if your financial advisor said, bad news for you, yeah, the, uh, the investments we made were really bad and, and you've got no money left, it's, it's all gone. Could you say that if your kids leave? Can you say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ? Men will let you down. Kings will let you down. Everything else will let you down, but this rock is guaranteed to expand and fill the earth because it wasn't made with human hands. It's not something that we have control over. And so that's Daniel's message to us. That's Nebuchadnezzar's example to us. That's what God is accomplishing as he's building that kingdom. He's expanding it across the world. Please read chapters 12 through 16 of Luke. Not this week, but over the time and just meditate on that and ask those questions. Not how does this apply to somebody else, but how does it apply to you? And check your heart, test it. See, see where it is. Is it fixed on Christ or is it tied up in other things? Because it's too easy to slip into that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, in your word, it says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and who can understand it? And uh, Father, that's not as we look to other people and say their human heart. It's that chunk of flesh beating in our rib cage as well. And we don't even understand our own hearts. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you show us what's going on in our own hearts? Lord, where is our identity, our hope, our trust, our purpose in life? Where does it really reside? And Lord, if your command to us is to sell everything, give it away and follow you, Lord, would you give us the ability to trust that that is a good and a true thing, that that is better than the riches that we could have. It's better than the position, the authority, the beauty, the, the money, all of those things. It's better than all of that to follow you. Lord, lead us and help us to be part of that rock that fills the earth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.